0: Hello everyone. This is Victoria Lupashko, one of the hosts for the Asian Studies channel, part of the New Books Network. Today we are here with Dr. Monica Leo, assistant professor in the Department of Justice and Society Studies at University of St. Thomas, Minnesota. Hello, Dr. Leo, and welcome to our channel.
1: Hi, how are you?
0: Good. Um, very excited, as you can hear, I'm very excited to, um, to hear about your book and to, uh, to talk about it. Awesome. You know, first of all, I wanted to thank you for agreeing to talk to us about our new uh, about your new book, uh, Seeking Western Men, Email Order Brides Under China's Global Rise," published by Stanford University Press in uh, 2023. I will start by, you know, just the usual question of um, the general question of getting to know you and your work better. So, you know, I was wondering whether you could tell us how you came to this project And, you know, what got you interested in studying Internet dating and cross-border marriages between Chinese women and American men?
1: Uh, sure. Actually, I never even knew that this whole phenomenon of global internet dating and cross-border marriage existed. So this project, in some ways, fell in my lap just by happenstance. So I was actually a business major in undergrad, and when after I graduated, um, I went into a sociology graduate program, thinking that I wanted to study economic sociology, making use of my business background. And I went, and when I went into it. Um, wanting to study guanxi or interpersonal relationships and how they affect businesses in China. But during my first uh, quarter in graduate school, I actually got a phone call from my dad and he told me that he recently connected with an old friend from China and she was in her 50s and she was actually getting prepared to meet a man who was flying to China to visit her that she met online. And she was kind of freaking out because she didn't know English. He didn't really know Chinese and she had never dated a Western man before. So she wanted some dating advice. And my dad thought, okay, let me put you in touch with my daughter who grew up in the United States. So I got connected with this lady on the phone. And after she told me her story, I was really surprised to hear that this there's this whole industry in China that's servicing middle-aged divorced women, um, especially women with kids. So I was going to China to visit my grandparents that summer. So I asked her, Hey, could I check out this place that you're talking about? It sounds really cool. And so she put me in touch with the dating agency owners. And when I met the owner, I actually discovered that she was one of my uncle's old office mates. He was her superior. Um, and, And I mean, obviously, they lost touch for a number of years, but. Um, because she knew my uncle so well, she said, oh, why don't you come? And if you want, you can help us out here and do research all you want. So, um, so I thought it was really fascinating what I saw inside. So that steered me in that direction, just basically pretty soon after I went to graduate school, but I never expected it.
0: That's amazing. And also, you know, a bit funny in a way, though, you know, the rediscovering connections and, you know, just kind of um, discovering the ways in which um, this type of, of, of um, I guess, enterprise works. Um, so I found that fascinating in the introduction, but, you know, I wanted to hear it from uh, from you um, because, you know, it just sounds <laughs> sounds better. Um, and um I'm just going to go into the the books i apologize for the noise if there's anything coming from my side Um, um yeah our neighbors decided to uh have chickens so uh you know you might hear something so i apologize for that in advance um but uh going back to to the book um i wanted to mention that it comprises of six chapters plus the introduction and the conclusions and in the introduction we learn about the field work you did over uh 11 years the methods and the complexities involved in such a study, uh, quote, examining why Chinese women seek Western men and how they, uh, their translators mediate their courtship, end of quote, and uh, another quote, looking at the outcome of their postmarital lives abroad, end of quote. So the book analyzes how market forces inextricably uh, intertwine with intimacy. As well as the roles of dating agencies, surrogate dating, translators, and global capitals, uh, ebbs and flows. So here I wanted to to hear more, um, and right to invite you to to speak more of the shifting importance of class, race, and gender in cross border marriages and the decision processes behind them.
1: Uh, Sure. So first, uh, my book challenges people to rethink this relationship between race and class in a new world order where wealth is really decentering across continents but becoming increasingly polarized within each country so i think that under this kind of condition then one of the questions i ask is do western men and does western masculinity still hold some kind of uh, power and privilege in china even though china is on the global rise and through some examples in my book i see that yes there is um Western masculinities does still hold some kind of power, and we can see that through how the dating agencies are marketing their Western men to Chinese women as men who are morally superior, meaning that Western men are more family-oriented, more loyal, and more caring, and therefore they're better husband material than Chinese men, even if the Western men may not be as wealthy as some of the newly rich Chinese men. So the fact that this kind of portrayal sells in China, I think, reflects some form of superiority of Western culture, right, that exists in the Chinese imagination today. However, I would also say that we see moments where Western masculinity is starting to lose its power in China today. And through my research, I see this typically in the latter phase of the courtship process, when couples go offline and instead of conversing online, the man has actually traveled to con- to China to meet the woman face-to-face. And some of the women, what happens is that they'll very quickly reject their Western suitors once they realize that these are working-class men who don't embody a particular type of elite masculinity that these women are seeking in a partner. And Instead, some of these women I've seen will actually choose to continue dating their local Chinese lovers, even if those lovers were married and not actually willing to divorce their wives for for the women. So this is because a lot of women in China, they have Chinese lovers who have very refined tastes and lifestyles and sexual know-hows that a lot of their foreign suitors actually lacked. So even though in the West, race remains to be this very important markers of status um, that's independent of class. Um, and that's because in the West, ethnic minorities still hold much less economic, political and social power than the white majority, even if we see some individual uh, racial minorities that accomplish great things. But this is not the case in Asia anymore. Um, On the whole, the old racial hierarchy where white men were on top, that's crumbling in China as shown by the Chinese women's preference for their wealthy local lovers over their working class foreign suitors. So my work really captures this kind of shift in relationship between race and class as this affluent class emerges in China as a result of globalization. Um, Another important implication that my work has is for how we understand global migration, especially the way we think about how new differences of wealth between um, sending and receiving countries influence why people migrate. So Today, China has this very unique position on the world stage where, on the one hand, it's an emerging world superpower that's projected to overtake the U.S. to become the world's largest economy eventually. But on the other hand, China's growth has been pretty uneven and it's still considered a developing country if we look at it by its GDP per capita. So given this economic diversity in China, we can't really just make generalized predictions about Chinese migrants just on the basis of these macroeconomic trends alone. And instead, I would argue that we have to focus more on the intragroup differences or differences between the chi- Chinese migrants, the wealthy ones versus the poor ones, because their motives and aspirations and mate selection strategies are going to be completely different.
0: Fascinating, and thank you for 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 the answer. It's so so capacious and really explains um, this this difference and the shift in importance um, that that we see um, in it happening, right? And the, the the global capital ebbs and flows. Uh, how they influence uh, decision-making and, you know, personal uh, interaction in the end. And I think that that continues, right? So this, this train of thought, of course, continues through the chapters. And in chapter one, entitled, Why Do Chinese Women Seek Western Men? Um, we see in detail the ways in which globalization impacted women's standing and roles in China, pushing them to seek migration via marriage. And I was curious about the changes or the mutations in ideology and at the broader social level happening in the post-reform period that transformed middle-aged women's perspective.
1: Uh, Sure. Sure. You know, a lot has changed in China since the economic reform that started in 1979. Since then, as we discussed, China's GDP has grown pretty dramatically. But alongside that, we've also seen increasing income disparity. So China's reform has really led to the rise of this new rich business class that's primarily dominated by middle-aged men, while women's wages have really declined. So this has led to rising rates of divorce, where many of these new rich men, especially in the 90s and early 2000s, uh, left their wives for younger women. Now, there's also in China this revival of traditional gender norms in the post-reform era as the country shifts away from the height of state socialism when women were told that they c- they could do anything that men can do and women were encouraged to uh, be more gender neutral or to even perform masculinity. Um, so now with... Uh, Xi Jinping coming to power and then China moving to a more mixed economy, uh, you you see this change in gender culture as well. And today, masculinity is becoming increasingly tied to breadwinning, while women are increasingly valued for their youth and domesticity. So in China today, a lot of women are now considered leftover and unmarriageable as young as age 27. So with that, many of the women in my study are middle-aged, divorced, and they have children, and many of them are struggling on their local marriage markets because of this changing uh, gender norms in their country. Specifically, I divide the women I studied into two groups, one of whom I call financially flexible and the other I call financially burdened. So the financially flexible women include ex-wives or mistresses of rich businessmen, or they may have been uh, self-made entrepreneurs themselves. And the reason they're seeking Western men is not because they are struggling financially, right? It's actually quite the opposite. They're doing well financially, but their Chinese ex-husbands may have cheated on them or left them for younger women. So what's really driving them to seek Western men, it's the age disadvantage that they face on their domestic marriage market because men of similar social economic status as them want to remarry younger women. Now for the financially burdened women, those tend to be women who may have been laid off factory workers during the large scale factory layoffs of the 1990s when many middle-aged women were disproportionately impacted. So with no college degree um, and living in China, a society that today practices so-called beauty economy um, hiring where women generally under 30 um, have preference in getting hired in real estate, high-end department stores, so on and so forth, while older women without college degrees really um, struggle and they get the most undesirable jobs, having to work as nannies, as nursing home aides, street vendors, in temporary jobs that don't offer full-time retirement benefits or insurance. And then we also have some single moms who want their children to go to school overseas um, for a better education, but they can't afford it. So these are all of the reasons that are driving middle-aged divorced women in China to seek uh, husbands elsewhere and Many of their motives are tied to the changing social economic structure and gender ideology that's happening in post reform China.
0: Right. Yeah. It's it's fascinating the ways in which um, right all of this uh, comes comes together. Right. And and um, you see it in the the description of the children's future. Right. Or the hopes for for the children, as you just mentioned, about the the the, the group of of women who think about. Um, Um, their, um, right, a better education or better uh, social um, support. Um, And I think this, um, as we progress uh, towards chapter two, uh, right, there's uh, this idea, you you entitled it Provider Love. And um, we see the perceptions of Western masculinity and its practices, which influence marriage decisions on the Chinese women's part. Um, And, you know, without asking the same question all over again. Um, you know, I just thought that the, the question the, the, the title of the chapter um, sums up uh, quite a few meanings and tensions. And I wanted to invite you to tell us more about what it means, what provider love means, and how it points to a hybrid understanding of a potential partner uh, from you know who lives abroad and might be um, you know may, might be a choice.
1: Sure. So provider love generally refers to love that's based on provision of material goods. And it's actually very common in many different cultures, including Asian culture. And it doesn't just apply to romantic relationships. It can apply to um, the case of relationships between parents and children. For example, children who show their love for their parents by taking care of them financially when the parents are an older age. So in Chinese culture, men providing for women is actually historically has been and is also currently this very normative way for men to show their love for women. And women oftentimes measure how deep is the man's love for her and his level of commitment to her based on how much he spends on her. So maybe sounds like a little bit like 1950s U.S. gender norms. And all of this is exacerbated by the changing uh, gender ideology that I previously mentioned, where breadwinning is tied to bread uh, masculinity in China today. So, very interestingly, um, while in the West, splitting the bill and sharing expenses is associated with some form of progressiveness and modernity in in the West, a lot of the women in my studies see that as stingy and effeminate. So, what the women Um, They're really rejecting modern Western masculinity in existing form, and what they really want is some kind of new hybrid masculinity ideal, right, that combines the best of both worlds from the East and the West, meaning that they want. A man who is loyal, um, caring, family-oriented, but at the same time, he would be wealthy and generous and give them provider love the way that a wealthy Chinese entrepreneur would by paying all the bills and taking care of women financially
0: absolutely and i think you know that that leads us to um you know you you pointed it a little bit to to the idea of of tensions right and potential conflicts that may arise in uh in the case when uh this uh this perfect mixture as you you described doesn't happen or it it takes a while to to be instantiated um and in chapter 3 transnational business masculinity um i think we see a very intricate picture of uh relationship conflicts. Um, and, you know, I was just curious to, to know um, what exactly were there and how do they revolve around uh, an understanding of class distinctions?
1: Sure. So a lot of women in my study, especially the ones that were financially well off, so they're used to dating wealthy Chinese businessmen. And what they're finding is that many of the Western suitors are sexually unappealing um, because those men don't actually embody the kind of elite masculine traits that um, these women typically see in men who are in positions of leadership and power because of their high economic status. So I want to differentiate this a little, a little bit between this and provider love, meaning that um, what the women are attracted to in this case where they're going for a particular type of elite masculinity is not necessarily how much he spends on her, but rather some of whether his, o- but rather his own uh, characteristics and traits and attributes that he develop based on his high social economic power and status. So for example, the, for the women, their ideal mate is someone who's well-traveled, cosmopolitan, extroverted and assertive. Um, One woman in my study, actually, after meeting a Western man who traveled to China to visit her, um, when he saw her, when she saw that he brought a ton of batteries, she said she knew immediately that this person just wasn't well-traveled because someone well-traveled would know that you can buy batteries in China. You don't need to carry a bunch of batteries on an international trip. Um, to give you another example, one of the women in my study disliked the fact that her American suitor left all the decision making to her right as to where to go or what to eat. He would always say, I don't know, I'm happy with whatever you want. And she thought this was not very masculine because it, he was not assertive. He didn't um, show any signs of leadership. And instead, she really liked her married Chinese lover, who was a business owner and led 500 people in a company. And her lover, by contrast, would always just give her options for dinner, just A, B, C, and ask her to choose from that list. So on site, I actually saw a lot of these women continue to pursue wealthy Chinese businessmen. Sometimes even if these men were married, not available um and they would reject average earning unmarried western suitors as well as average earning unmarried chinese men that pursued them because these men just didn't have the refined mannerisms and exquisite lifestyles and the sexual know-hows of their rich lovers So really, these women's behaviors show us that men who don't exhibit a particular type of elite masculinity, right, are seen as unsexy, and they're going to get rejected regardless of their race, ethnicity, and nationality. So I argue that as an affluent class emerges in both China and the West, right, it's really class distinction that's becoming increasingly important, while other factors like race, ethnicity, and nationality is now playing a much lesser role in sexual attraction
0: fascinating i uh, i'm just uh, you know sitting here and, and listening to you and you know i it, i find this um very, very interesting, and the, the way things change, right? As as the world um, also transforms itself uh, with with capital and you know neoliberalism expansion, um, and um, you know speaking of, of financial uh, issues in chapter four, embracing domesticity, uh, we see the, the financial uh, dependency on the husband um, that leads, w- lead, leads women to actually accept a certain condition uh, that they wouldn't necessarily um do otherwise accept otherwise or you know that would preclude them from having a fulfilling marriage um so that would be one of the 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 things that complicates right the the relationship itself and my question here regards the dynamics uh, in such a marriage and how do they challenge a western perspective on on gender roles
1: i'm um, sure so a lot of the women in my study they became homemakers and they rely on their husbands for financial support while there were some others that decided to work outside the home. And very interestingly, you know, the women who stayed at home, they weren't necessarily less happy or felt less empowered than the women who worked. So I think my work shows that what really mattered to the women wasn't necessarily whether or not the women were in a patriarchal bargain where they stayed home to perform domestic work in exchange for their husband's financial support. Um, Right. That was not the most important factor, but rather whether or not they saw the particular bargain that they had struck with the men to be a fair exchange that fulfilled their respective personal needs. So, for example, one woman whom I call Lindsay in the book, she was in her 50s. She had married this older retired man in his 60s. And they had a marriage where the expectation was that she would take care of him into old age while he supported her financially. And eventually, after he passes, since he's much older, his, uh, her son could inherit his home and his property since he didn't have children of his own and this actually worked out quite beautifully for the couple they actually shared a lot of common hobbies and interests they both liked opera they liked literature he encouraged her to learn to drive and make new friends and go to work if she chose to but she chose not to and he respected her and he often put her needs before his own Is what I observed, for example, when he bought a very expensive new down comforter, he actually gave her that new comforter and took her old one because he wanted her to have the best. Now, on the other hand, um, another woman named Joanne had a very terrible time with her American husband. And this is because before they married, Joanne actually assumed that she was marrying a rich factory owner. And so she wanted to capture this guy and impress him by acting very domesticated and docile, even though she didn't really like cooking, she didn't really like housework, she acted as if she did. And also, she purposely didn't ask him questions about his job or any details about his income because she thought that this would make her come off as insincere. And she made all of her judgments based on the designer clothing and the handbags he bought her and the monthly stipend he had sent to her. So this was her strategy before marriage. But when she moved to the U.S., she actually discovered that his factory had already was already not doing very well eventually um, it shut down and he wasn't financially well off anymore he was just sitting at home most of the days playing golf occasionally and so she felt very disappointed that he really wasn't able to give her the kind of financial support she thought um, she would get and at the same time he expected her her to be very subservient and docile and dress and eat and act in ways that he had liked. So in her mind, this wasn't really a fair patriarchal bargain because he didn't offer right the type of financial reward that she had expected, but she was still expected to right, perform this kind of emphasized f- femininity and to fulfill this patriarchal bargain by doing all of the housework, um, staying home to look after his two very young children when they when he had custody half of the time and be very subservient. So as you can see, it's not really necessarily the separation of spheres, which is the hallmark ideology behind patriarchal bargains that would make or break these marriages, but rather what are the specific terms and conditions of the bargain for each couple. And to have a functioning bargain, both have to, both parties have to see the costs and their rewards to be equitable and therefore worthy of pursuing and maintaining.
0: Makes sense. Uh, I can I can totally understand the 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 logic behind it, and uh, again, it's it's fascinating to to hear how um how it works, or sometimes it doesn't, right? As you you mentioned, and how it comes out from the the two examples that that you provided, um, and that. That brings us to a different dichotomy, in a way, in Chapter 5, uh, Body of a Woman, Fate of a Man. Um, and here, um, we see the chapter engaging in detail with entre- entrepreneurial sea feminism and its shaping of transnational marriages where women explore jobs outside their homes. And um, I wasn't, uh, I mean, I, I read it in, in the chapter, and it became clear, but, you know, I wanted to um, ask for our, our listeners, uh, what does entrepreneurial C-feminism stand for? and how does it speak of macroeconomic changes happening in China and you know, that being visible in women's understanding of their own financial, financial roles?
1: Uh, sure. So let's start with explaining what is entrepreneurial C feminism. So many of my respondents actually identify with this strand of Chinese feminism that the scholars Angela Wu and Dong Yige have coined. Entrepreneurial CFEM. And this model encourages women to abandon traditional virtues such as submissiveness and self sacrifice, but it doesn't really associate female empowerment with participation in the paid labor force either. Instead, women are encouraged to capitalize on and cultivate their sexual attractiveness, including their femininity and their domestic skills, in order to maximize their material gain on the marriage market. So in China today, there are a lot of popular sayings that emerged, um, which speak to this strand of feminism. So things like uh, women conquer the world through conquering men, or a man shows his love for a woman by handing her his wallet. So the idea here is that rather than gaining direct access to power through the paid labor force, right? women are actually supposedly better off pursuing uh, using their feminine appeal to control men instead. Now, this kind of feminism really responded with a lot of my interviewees who were living in China at a time when the country has really been governed by a market logic that really emphasized women's economic dependence on men and their sexual objectification by men. So under these kinds of conditions, a lot of women aim to achieve leverage over men by cultivating their attractiveness through performing conventional femininities, right, rather than by competing with men on the labor market directly. Now, this attitude actually carried over when the women engaged in cross-border marriages with Western men. So even when my respondents started working, many of them expected to keep any earnings they made as their private money, while their Western husbands demanded that they chip in on household expenses. So the women's practice of entrepreneurism feminism in their new marriages actually became a source of friction um, in the West. But in the women's mind, um, they think that what they're trying to pursue makes perfect sense because many of them had previously had successful careers in China. Some of them were business owners, but then their ex-husbands may have gambled away their money. Um, Some of their ex-husbands never paid child support after divorce. So in the woman's mind, right, exchanging their domesticity and sexuality for men's financial support um, and keeping all her earnings as her pocket money is a much smarter move than being the breadwinner in the household and sharing expenses and supporting a husband, right, who ends up taking all your money and cheating on you. So it's very important for us to realize that this kind of entrepreneurship feminism maybe would benefit some women at the individual level, right? You're always going to be, see certain women who uh, married up, married rich, um, and then even at the time of divorce were able to um, gain a lot of property and not have to worry about money for the rest of their lives but but so this some individuals may get lucky but for women as a group and in the long run right this might not be the best strategy because one not all women have the bodily or the sexual capital right to engage in entrepreneurial feminism and marry up and two uh, frankly beautiful faces and young bodies will fade with time
0: Unfortunately, yes, the fading um, you know I would have to to uh, agree to that, but you know I mean joke aside um it is a very interesting um right, phenomenon that happens, and I think um this the the concept right entrepreneurial see feminism is um it's it's a very important um well both concept but also um you know matter of fact that that is we can see uh in China. And um, you know, with chapter six, uh, we actually get to, to the part that I found extremely interesting. And that is the surrogate dating translators behind the screens. And here uh, we see the, the, the work of the translators. Uh, you know, And I thought it, it can be like, this is impossible. How do they do their work? And um, as you, you mentioned in the chapter, it is a difficult work to do. And this mediation uh, between Western men and Chinese women is done by uh, usually right, young uh, translators. And I wanted to ask you about the emotional labor involved in their daily tasks, their ethical struggles, and the gains they might have from, from their job.
1: Uh, sure. So let's start with the uh, emotional labor part. And this is tied to this process that I call uh, surrogate dating in the book. And the term actually refers to the process by which the translators act as the women's online surrogates um, during the email translation process. And I came up with the term because I noticed that Even though technically the women are supposed to provide translators with the Chinese content for the email exchanges that the translators are supposed to translate, in practice, a lot of women don't because they have this mentality where they've paid very high membership fees so the translators should perform the labor of dating for them. Also, some women feel that the translator are just simply better versed in Western culture and can represent them in a way that's more appealing than what they can do themselves. So some women end up providing some basic information to their translators and have their translators elaborate, while some others just let their translators take over entirely. So this process can be very much mentally taxing, as you can imagine, for the translators who are acting as the women's online surrogates, and because of that they tend to go through all the emotional ups and downs as their clients go through that so for example when some translators see couples marry they feel extremely happy they say that they feel like they just created a new baby but then when some relationships fall apart they would actually get sad and depressed as well there are a lot of ethical challenges too involved on this job because a lot of times the translators really struggle to try to balance their profit-making motives um, to keep their job and to earn money, but they have to balance that with their own conscience and their own moral standards as well. So to give you a specific example, uh, one time a translator went with a Chinese female client to the airport to pick up this American man who who was landing in China. But as soon as they arrived and, and they had actually seen the American man from afar, but at the same time, this woman saw her married Chinese lover there with his wife. So she panicked and she didn't want her Chinese lover to see her with another man even if he had a wife maybe she wanted to keep their affair going maybe um he was providing her with monetary support every month that she didn't want to lose but whatever the reason she was scared of running into him so she actually ran into the airport bathroom to hide for a whole hour and she asked the translators just to tell the american men that she had a stomach ache and she was sick so after the her Chinese lover left the airport, she left the bathroom, came out, and when they were on a cab ride back with the American man to his hotel, she asked the translator to explain to him that she wanted um, them to plan a trip outside of the city that they originally planned to stay in, and her whole purpose was to avoid running into her Chinese lover. So uh, you can imagine the translator felt really uncomfortable and and kind of annoyed that she had to perform this cover up for her chinese female client um, and and really at the bottom of her heart she wanted to tell the client hey you shouldn't be uh, playing two men at once and you shouldn't be having this affair with a married chinese man and being registered at our site at the same time but she, right that was she was not in really in a position to do that if she wanted to keep the client and keep the business going so, so nevertheless, um, this job offers translators a path toward upward mobility, especially because a lot of these translators are young women in their early 20s or mid 20s um, who are originally from rural areas that only moved to the big cities for college. So they didn't have family or friends or connections in the city um, to get a good job out right out of college. But with this job that they're doing at the dating agency, if they work hard and they're a top performer, um, some women were actually able to save up enough money to buy a home in a major city before they turned 30. Um, This is if they did really well and the dating agency managers give them a a share of the company stock. Then, right, this is a big accomplishment in China. It's almost like buying an apartment in New York City. Um, Others were able to, after working there for a couple years, um, do their own startup. Um, I remember another translator went to graduate school, um, and some others had dated and actually married Western men and moved abroad. So certainly this job has a lot of its challenges, but it also um, gave many of the translators an opportunity for upward social economic mobility.
0: Amazing. And it's so, so fascinating. I I almost wanted to ask you for more more examples and, uh, you know, more, more details, but um, you know, for, uh, in order to, to respect your time, I just wanted to ask whether there's anything that escaped the question so far, but it would be important to add at this point.
1: Um, Well, what's really interesting um a development that's more recent right after i finish much of my study is that the Industry is also changing and evolving a lot because technology has just developed really fast in the last 10 years, especially mobile technology. So while email exchanges were very common 10, 20 years ago, today, a lot of couples, after doing a little bit of email, they'll go straight to texting and video calls. And we have some really amazing translation software that you can install on your phone apps that can help you write, translate everything on the spot so in the the dating agencies I study I know today the translators may still help with live video calls where they're sit in as a translator but there's really not as much email exchanged as before Um, so the industry is transitioning too from this email translation service to more of a relationship dating coaching service. So when I visited the agencies in 2019, right before um, the pandemic broke out, they had actually downsized considerably. Many translators were working from home instead because women were not coming into offices as much. And they were offering a lot of online classes to to the women to teach them dating etiquette how to dress how to act when the western men came um, and tips and strategies so the idea is that even if there you have translation software that can assist with the language barrier you still have this cultural barrier that a lot of people need help with so you still need someone to give you the cultural know-hows and the dating strategies and tips to show you how to navigate a relationship cross-border with a foreign man?
0: I was thinking too that the pandemic might have impacted the way um, the agencies worked. Um, but I wasn't sure whether you know that that fell under the purview of, of your research or not so I didn't um, you know think about it when I read the book but would you say that the, the pandemic actually affected and changed? Uh, most of the practices?
1: Um, based on what I know and what I hear from the dating agencies, actually, they suffered um, loss of clients during the pandemic. And much of this has to do with the fact that China shut down all international travel. So, uh, even so, I heard that the rate of letter exchange had actually gone up during the pandemic because uh, people were stuck in their homes so they're writing more letters even though they couldn't visit each other but because the um, shutdown in China was so long a three-year period they were starting to lose clients over time but now things have Open back up, so I think the business is starting back up. But then at the same time, I think um, because of the availability of mobile technology, um, overall that that pattern of less email exchange and more video calls is here to stay.
0: And we have already taken a lot of your time. And, you know, I, I just have one last question. Uh, I was wondering uh, whether you could tell us more about your current projects, what you're working on right now or hope to work uh, in the near future.
1: Uh, sure. So I'm currently uh, working on a new project. And because I specialize in the areas of gender and race, my new project will look into racism and sexism against Asian women entering leadership positions in higher education. Um, So Asians make up about 6% of college students and 8% of faculty members, but actually only 1% of college presidents. And among Asian college presidents, only 22% are women. So this, this question that my new study asks is, why is it that Asian women are so underrepresented in leadership positions in academia? And there are some existing studies that show that Asian women struggle to obtain leadership positions because they're often stereotyped as being too smart, too research-focused, too devoted to family, to make time for work, or they're oftentimes sexualized as youthful-looking and exotic but not assertive enough and not experienced. So, in my study, I want to further explore, right, whether Asian women's lack of representation in leadership positions stems from issues that women have with their own personal identity, or whether it's due to some kind of institutional barrier, such as lack of mentorship in the workplace, or is it some combination of both? So I'm working with two other colleagues, and we have designed a large-scale survey, which we are going to uh, administer this fall, and we'll also be interviewing a select number of Asian women faculty, uh, especially those who have obtained leadership positions, to give their experience and insight on what steps can be taken to promote more uh, Asian women representation in higher education leadership.
0: That sounds like a very intricate and very much needed study to to, to be published. And I really look forward to, to reading it specifically because as you were describing it um, in, in Canada, I haven't seen a lot, at least in Quebec, a lot of um, Asian women having, um, you know, leadership positions um, outside maybe of um, maybe, yeah, the downtown Montreal, maybe. Um, but it didn't seem that, that um, you know, common. So um, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, whether um, Canada would be a, a site of research for you in the future as well
1: yeah that is an entire possibility right now we're looking at um higher education institutions in the u.s but this could certainly be extended to um, other western countries such as canada or even western europe because um, a lot of the stories that i hear from asian women faculty there are seem, seem to be the same or maybe even a little bit more exaggerated
0: sure i mean i i I can't imagine so i'm i'm very much looking forward to to your findings and you know after you you interview these um the the people and also after you run the the survey and i hope to to have you again here on new books network for an interview on that study (laughs)
1: Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Uh, This was really fun. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to share my research findings with you through this very interesting um, opportunity. Thank
0: you so much. And um, I wish you a happy summer.
1: (laughs) Okay, thank you. You too.